You know, addiction is giving up everything for one thing. Why did I give up my marriage and my, my family for business and, all, and destroy the whole thing early on? Because the way it made me feel. Success made me feel so valuable. I couldn't shake it. Nothing. Only two things made me feel that way, like success in business and money and sex. That's it. It's the only two things that is so rewarding. I go, oh, my gosh. You know, this is this is so rewarding. I feel valuable. And how many of us are trying to figure out what's our identity? I mean, identity drives behavior. You want to know what you behave like? Look at what you believe. Today's episode is sponsored by Relay Human Cloud, a leading provider of staff hosting and related services to simplify and de-risk the process of adding remote overseas workers. Stay tuned to the end of this episode and you'll be able to hear more about Relay Human Cloud, what they do, and how they've helped businesses like mine, Fort Capital. We're offering an exclusive promo code for the fans of this show, so make sure to stick around for that to receive $500 off per employee per year. Hey guys, I want to update you a little bit on Fort Capital. We are still acquiring Class B Industrial throughout Texas and the Sun Belt. We're looking to buy deals between 15 and up to 250 million. We're looking for portfolios now. We offer industry leading incentives, which you can see on our website, that include an additional half a point commission for off market deals. One thing we found was that our historical contract to close ratio is 98%. So if we're making a contract, we're getting it closed. We have a robust team to deliver an on-time smooth closing. And you can see all this at fortcapitallp.com backslash deal dash incentive. Thank you so much. Every time you need something, mm -hmm. if you live in a town with a university, you should reach out to their business school or whatever school and just say, "What? who's your top student doing X? I'd love to meet them. Wow. And so I just said, who's doing your podcast? And they said, Johnny. And Johnny showed up to my office with, he had done all this research on me. He had a folder prepared. I mean, just no wow. Way. I was just expecting some college kid to walk in and say, yo, bro, yeah. I do podcasts. <laughs> and uh, that, been awesome. that wasn't what happened. He showed up and said, okay, you're hired. And six years later, we're still working together. And now he works on six of the biggest podcasts in the country. What a cool story. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Influence is, is powerful. Like a lot of people will ask for money, in income or for investment, mm -hmm. but they miss the power of influence. What's the power of influence? Well, I mean, think how you open doors by doing podcasts. Maybe you got him connected with other people. Maybe they saw the work you're doing. Like we can leverage, we have a platform for influence. All of us do that, that, you know, and we can use influence for good. Does everybody have the power to influence or is it, it is it a unless gift you're or on a an, Unless you're on an island by yourself, right? Yeah. I mean, with your kids, your neighbor, love is so darn powerful and so rare. It looks like you're lighting a candle in a dark cave. It's so rare to see somebody. We had a uh, lunch yesterday and back in Montgomery and they were like, this young man treated us so kindly and did such a good job. And I was like, that's going to get you a long way. What did he do? Well, he was in attentive to what we were doing. He answered our questions. He was kind and on top of it in a fast food type place. I just said, you know, you're a unicorn. Yeah. He's like, what do you mean? I said, look how you've taken care of us. You solved our problems. You've cared deeply. I said, you're, you're fully present. You're not distracted. I said, this is unusual. 
So that'll take you a long way right there, my friend. Is that unusual in America or is that unusual across the globe? And uh, America's quite different. Okay. I mean, it's funny. I always used to wonder when we go places, why things happen so amazing, like amazing life transformations, all these things. And I realized it was, it was them, not us. What do you mean? I mean, it was same guy here sharing a, like with leaders and people leaving. Oh, that was good. Stretch a little bit, have some coffee. In another in other countries, sometimes they'll they'll change their whole life. They'll bring their family in and make a commitment in front of you of what they're going to do with what you said. It's a humbling thing because you better not just run your mouth about loose stuff, you know. Yeah. I'll give you an example. I was there one time and speaking to a bunch of leaders in uh, in Mexico. It's probably twenty or thirty leaders. Okay. And started talking about marriage, <laughs> and the men started weeping, and they started just giving up the goods. We're doing wrong. So you don't hardly see this anywhere in the States, right? Why? You know, when our culture, is it how we've been brought up? And I think it's hard to be as blessed as we are and not be affected by it. I mean, every room's air conditioned. And as you so, (laughs) so, so creatively taught me, nobody's praying for cheaper jet fuel. (laughs) You know, what's interesting, though, that about this is, um, you know, there's so many things that happen in our lives. I think every great season starts with meeting somebody. And so does every bad one. Mm. You look back at your life, you can set seasons and reasons often by the people you met and what that did. And so meeting people is important. I was just sharing. uh, with our buddy here, I said, if you want to ask great questions, and I, I believe that's one of my focuses to, is to learn to ask great questions. I've got a question journal. They're curated by the power of them. And as I see them working, they move up in priority. But there's 10 questions I always ask. Okay. And a few of those, what I learned is if you ask the same question from many, many wise people, what you get to do is borrow their perspective or their glasses on a topic. So imagine if you ask older men about marriage or about business and you ask specifically and you ask these same questions. Well, now you're borrowing 10 leaders perspective on that one topic. So, for example, one thing I ask is how has failure shaped your life? Mm. Well, when you get these lenses to borrow and I document them and I've got hundreds of people's response on that one question. Well, it gives me this incredible context to it, to look at it and borrow those classes and look at my own situations through those. And one of the other questions, probably the best question I ask, I think, if you're, if you're interested in like leveraging your life, is who do you know that I should know? Mm. And would you introduce me? That's taken me all over the world. And what have you found is the person that most people think you should know? Is it their most successful friend, their friend with the most money? Like, what is the common theme or relationship between that person and the person you should know? For me, it's interesting. It just depends on how in the world they met me. Okay. If they think I'm a real estate guy, they're telling me about their real estate friend. If they think I'm a marriage guy, they send me the, just whatever they think I am at any given time because they want to, people want to put you in the Rolodex in a section. Yep. And it, they struggle if you're in a different section. So wait a minute, are you a real estate guy or a development guy or an old town guy? Or are you a, marriage, you know, whatever context you're in, that's what, what I see and how they open doors. But what I begin to do is be better about that. So listen, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in do a lot of different things, but here's the things I'm really, I really care about. Here's the things I'm working on right now. And 
this is kind of what is on my mind. And then, do you know anyone I should know in this? And I've ended up meeting great people. I mean, I think something I've learned from you and just kind of growing up is how quickly I know myself, somebody can walk into a room and you can just profile them, slice them and dice them and put Mm -hmm. them in categories like in seconds. And then I went to a place called Onsite about a year and a half ago and spent Mm -hmm. a week there. And one of the rules there was you can't tell anybody what you do for a living and you can't tell anybody your last name. Mm -hmm. And I thought, we're not going to have shit to talk about. We're we're not going to have anything to talk about. And it was unbelievable that once those just last name and just what your profession was, was off the table. We had so much to talk about. But when that tends to be the thing that, especially in the business entrepreneur world, you lead out with, I'm Chris and I'm in real estate or I'm with Fort Capital or we do industrial or, and then boom, like the, the, the profile has been set. And you go through a lot of life living that way. It's really a problem. And I thought about it. I said, you know, it seems like people are assessing your value and net worth with questions and and a wide variety of questions like, oh, what do you do for a living? I'm in real estate. Ooh, how much land you got? One acre. Hmm. It's in in Manhattan. So So true. They're figuring out whether you're valuable enough. And then I also think some people, like when they get to to a place like Jess Carell, our friend, he says he's a farmer. Now, yeah. he owns banks and an insurance company and does investments all over America, but he's a, he's a farmer. So it's fun to kind of like, I think my future, I'm going to be like temporary pool services. So like <laughs> I, I've got this kind of career mindset change where I want to start having my own little pool service where I'm doing my pool maintenance, not only on my own, but future one that we'll do in a community we're building. So I think that's fun. I think it disarms people. Okay. So I think you just answered the next question, which is why is humility so attractive? So if we took it to Jess or somebody and you Mm -hmm. said, well, what are you doing? They're like, I own 30 banks. I've got a, you know, insurance. I mean, just dad, dad, dad. by the end of you hearing it, you're just like, ah, it's just, there's something about that that turns you off. But then when you hear, oh, um, I'm a farmer, but then you go on in your own world to learn about what they do as you're learning more, that person's almost becoming more attractive to you because they did just say, I'm a farmer. Why is it that humility is so attractive? I think to, to our point before, I think it's rare. You know, when you're very accomplished, it's rare. I mean, when you've accomplished a lot, the world praises. It's rare. I mean, what do you? You know, it's interesting. I just had this codified more, and I, I don't want to butcher it because it was such a powerful statement, but but I used to think everybody puts a number on other people's head. And so let's say in that initial conversation, you're adjusting numbers. Oh, he's a banker. Oh, eight. He's a farmer. He's four. You're, you're adjusting based on your base. I mean, if a farmer was asking that, he may think, Hey, this guy's amazing. <laughs> 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 but, but it's, it's, you're putting a number and what, what I think is, is the hardest thing to do is to not to hold on to the hot potato for a long time and wait and see who they are, not what they do. Yep. And that's hard. But I think humility is so darn attractive when it's true because it's approachable. You, you know, I always and I say this and I'm I'm not as good at this as I want. This is a constant struggle, discretion and discipline. What do I say and when do I say it? I screw this up all the time. Like I say the wrong things I don't want to say, and I say them in the wrong timing. Yeah. And it's harder for different 
wirings. Okay. Like the more your, your feelings are out on your, or the way that you approach the world and the way you talk, you'll say stuff you don't want to say. It's great till it's not. And the hard thing is, in my opinion, is to make the decision. Am I here to impress people or am I here to empower them? And if I have to choose impress or empower, because I can't do both, empowering is to be humble. Maybe somebody can. It's a, it is a constant struggle for me to say, what are you here to do? Are you here to make people's life better? Are you here to make them think more of you? And if you do that, I mean, you're playing a game then every time you fail it, it knocks your points down. Okay, let's just kind of continue on this thread. So we can talk about marriage, but I think let's start more just with entrepreneur type people. Mm-hmm. So on one end, you've reconciled hundreds of marriages, but a lot of those marriages were led by a husband or a, maybe a wife that was an entrepreneur. And there's a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm. It's an entrepreneur podcast. <laughs> what are the things or the blind spots that entrepreneurs maybe think they're entrepreneur types? I'm just kind of categorizing mm-hmm. a personality type. Think they're doing right, but then wake up one day and they're in a hole. I mean, I can tell you from my own life, I I cared what more about what people thought than what God thought. And if people are your God, you've got a rough system to work in. Why? Because they're gonna if they can praise you and empower you, they can they can critique you and take it away. Mm. And and the, it keeps getting pulled back and forth. Just service, and we'll we'll do right. I mean, you're you have to serve something. Yep. And the hardest person to serve is yourself. I mean, think about how hard it is to be selfish. You lose so much, and so as entrepreneurs, I think the courage to go against the grain in business and to try things and to fail often and to suffer. How do you keep that in its right spot? It's very hard in a hierarchy system. I mean, to me, it became businesses were like babies. And every time I lost one, it, I haven't lost a child, but I know I suffered great, great grieving from losing things that I invested a lot in. Either having to shut them down, you know, because it had to or I chose to or whatever. And most people haven't lost a lot. I mean, we started 60 businesses probably had 30 of them that we had to, or 40 we had to close in some way, or I don't know the number, maybe 20, but it's a lot. It's enough. I suffered greatly and I hate it. And every time I see it coming, I clench because I know what it feels like. When I say it's lonely at the top, what do you, how do you interpret that? Why do you get these people that have succeeded in big, big ways and they end up becoming lonelier and more isolated than anybody else? Well, they got to protect. Protect what? Themselves. I mean, I think about it like, I don't know how, I mean, everybody I'm sure that's listening to entrepreneurs have been taken advantage of by people they trusted, right? Mm-hmm. And I've got clients that are, you know, billionaires and multi-billionaires that are very, very famous. If I knew the name, you would, you would know them. I mean, they have reputation protection within every document they do and all this. I mean, the, the ways they have to protect themselves changes them. That's one of the things. The second thing is you get your head up your butt yeah. and start thinking you're more valuable than everybody else because you got money. Yep. And money's just an amplifier of your character. If you've got a good character, money can be good. And if you don't, 
it'll be what your character is. Go a little bit further on that. What do you mean a good person with money can do good things and a bad person with money can do bad things? We'll start there. Well, I just think, what's your definition of good and bad? You know, because whatever it is, that's what you're going to do. I mean, if you thought, you know, if you thought something that the world says is wicked is good, you know, you, you could push that. I mean, there's people who push child slavery and pornography with money in a big way, heroin. I mean, these things, again, it's what you got to ask yourself is, who am I? Because that'll tell you, if you know your identity, it'll tell you what your what your money will grow like, right? And does doing good with money just mean giving it away, or are there other ways to think about it? I mean, for me, generosity is the only thing that's pushed greed back. It's almost like, for me, and, and I don't know, I mean, I've had my experience, but we know this. So the, my first mentor, when I was broke and stupid, we, we were upside down. We didn't have $500 to pay our power bill. And he's, a, you know, worth, at the time, millions and millions of dollars. I said, give me some money. Stop trying to talk to me about stuff that doesn't matter and help me. Yeah. He said, well, I'm happy to help you. I said, oh, man, great. Well, I'll do whatever. He said, okay, answer three questions, and I'll help you. I thought, well, let's do it now. And he said, how much is enough? What are you going to do when you get enough? Now that you got a living plan, what's your giving plan? He said, you answer those three and I'll help you. I'll teach you everything I know. Did you answer it on the spot? Took six months. That's not an easy question, right? But I didn't know it was a hard question. I mean, he knew it was a hard question. And what he knew is if you don't know how much is enough, you'll never have enough. And I'm not saying you shouldn't earn more and more, but you got to, for us, the freedom of knowing we do three budgets when we're doing the final thing. Number one is what does it take to survive? And a lot of people are just surviving, hanging on by their fingertips, right? Yep. Drinking Maylox, yep. trying to make payments. They got way more month than they got money. Yep. And I've been there. $99,000 overdrawn. Bounced a thousand checks one year. That's $19,000 in NSF fees back then. <laughs> then there's people who are, are really comfortable. So it's survival. It's, it's comfortable. But the last one, what we call as wow, is the hard one. It's a lifestyle cap for some. And it isn't set in stone, but it's just saying, if we have this, this is enough. How are we going to live if we could live any way we wanted? And for us, we just laid out what that was, and we know the number. And so after that, we'll give it away. We'll invest it. We'll do whatever. But we don't have to have it. That was 30 years ago. Has the number changed? 20-something years ago. It has updated because all I knew at the time, and and think about, I mean, all I knew was net worth. I didn't have any other sense of what it was. So all we did was say net worth with a certain amount of what we could expect as a return on that would get us to the place that we could live and give the way we hope to. So I do think that's a hard thing. A lot of people, Jess, for example, and other guys in our world, Pete Oaks and and Wes Perry, these guys all have a number and they all sit down and talk about their number together. I'm not saying you should. Why? Because. Well, why did they talk about it together? Well, first, because in the multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. You get wise men together, very wise people, and ask their opinion on a specific subject that they understand. Like, why why do I ask you about the things I want to do financially? Because you're wise. And I want your perspective. And I want to take and hold that perspective with other perspectives and try to make a wise decision. Yeah. And if I'm going to make a wise decision, me and my wife are going to be aligned. 
and I'm going to have wise counsel from people I believe in, and I'm going to have a peace in my heart that passes understanding. Well, when I do that, I floor it. So let's go back to those three gentlemen. <laughs> they share with each other to hold each other accountable to, hey, your lifestyle's getting out it's of It's all about personal lifestyle. So their companies generate, they, they, here's some of the questions I ask. What should someone be paid to steward or, or manage what I manage? If you're managing 30 banks in an insurance company, there's a right amount to be paid, right? Yeah. And so there's that side. And then the other side is just the side of like, how do we want to live? Because unlimited living doesn't produce unlimited flourishing from what we've seen. Like ever. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying I hadn't seen it. And if I'd love to see it if it works. But the more you have, I mean, it's trouble. It's, it's a challenge, right? Like what my mentor says, how much, John, does it take to ruin your kids? I mean, that's part of my challenge right now. I could change both of my kids' life. Our oldest is 29. I have a five-year-old granddaughter and our youngest is 21. And I've got a two-year-old grandson. And I could mess these guys' life up in a heartbeat, right? Yep. I mean, I could pay off everything they have, get them new vehicles, buy them a new house, send them on trips. And we could just, just supersize this thing. If I did, I'm not sure they have the character to, to sustain that. I watch them struggle in order to give them the character they'll need when I'm not here to be good men. All right. So you just said I give them, giving them struggle actually builds character. I let them struggle, right? They they make the decisions to do crazy stuff. You know, like both of my boys don't have, I mean, reliable transportation is not hardly ever in their thing. They love working on cars. They want to. You know, they want to, if they got something that runs, they want to figure out how they can make it where it doesn't run, it seems like. Do you think at the age of 29 or 21 or anybody has what it takes that, that anybody you've ever come across, you'd say they're at a point where if their parents started doing all these things for them, they could handle it? Or is this kind of a thread that like you got to kind of go through the years of work and ups and downs to get there? It's a good question. I've had two young friends. One of my friends at 18 inherited like $100 million. Uh -huh. It blew his life up. He ended up getting put in prison for drugs. The other one that got it, it ended up wrecking his marriage. Got four kids. He got a hundred something million. What happened? They just lived large. His wife ended up getting addicted to alcohol, drinking, you know, high-end wine all day long and getting, I mean, Boy, boredom will play on you. Now, you better have a purpose for what you're doing, right? You need to, how many spouses do you know that those two together have a unified purpose that's worth writing checks with your life for? If not, it's country clubs, play tennis, spas, shopping. I mean, it's all that stuff, right? Yep. And you just kind of go through that every day. Every day. And you build a bubble of a life, but it's not a life that's meaningful in so many ways. I mean, it's it's hard to, I mean, the gym is a great example. Your life and your faith is like your muscle. Yeah. Time under tension. Nobody would say, hey, you're going to, you got a bunch of money, you're going to get abs. You don't even have to work for them. You go have abs, you got to work for them. On not giving your children what you could give them, mm -hmm. how do you reconcile with, and maybe it's just the character that you've raised them up until that point where it, there doesn't become resentment that he could be doing these things for me and he's not. Is part of that you being willing to deal with that kind of pressure and pain in the short term that maybe they 
are upset with me or maybe they resent me in the short term, but I know I'm investing for the long term? Or is it, I think I've built their character enough to be able to handle in their 20s and 30s that dad's not going to pay off everything or give See, them everything. Since I belly flopped a lot, I'm not probably the, I don't think I did the best job at parenting, although I tried. I think Ash made up a lot of the, you know, we've been married 31 years and we've invested in our kids, but there were so many things I missed. I mean, I, d- I think I'll be a better granddad, you know, but I do know this, there's stages. Uh, it's like in the first stage, you're a caretaker. Yeah. In the second, you're a cop. In the third, you're a coach. And in, in the fourth, if you're trustworthy, you get to be a counselor. And I'm at that stage, the fourth stage with both. And thank goodness I'm in the conversation. Yeah. They don't always listen to me, but I'm in the conversation and they see, I'd say the biggest thing you can do is live out what you believe. They're going to have the kind of marriage you have if you don't watch it. They're going to treat money the way you treat it if you don't watch it. Just don't listen to what I say. Just I tell my boys, I said, you want to know what a godly man looks like? Watch me. If you don't want what I got, I got to wonder what I have. So if it's not attractive, if my, my, the way I treat your mom is not the standard for how a person should love a wife, don't listen to me. Because that's what they're going to do anyway. Right. I mean, you think how often our kids pick up what we're doing and they end up just duplicating. it. You said something, you said build a bubble of life. Mm-hmm. How easy is it to deconstruct a bubble of a life once it's been created? And have you seen that happen before? Mostly by bubbles popping or by stuff. It's, it's like getting unpregnant. Any way you go, it's a little messy. Now, getting pregnant is pretty darn easy, kind of exciting. That last part is rough. Yep. And that's the way it is in anything. I mean, and you have to ask yourself, I think, or I do, every time we we have an idea we're going to go up, what me and Ash ask each other is, what do we got to give up? Because what happens when you get so much resources and opportunity, you feel like you don't have to give up anything. And for everything you gain, you lose something. I mean, you got to pay the price. What do you mean? I mean, just think about it. If if you want if you want to be in better shape, and you are now, you're paying a price. You're paying a price to do the medical work. You're doing paying a price to do the workouts. You're paying a price to walk. You're paying a price. Yep. And if you look at the price, then you, all you got to do is price to prize ratio, right? If the prize is clear, the price gets easy. Yep. If the prize is fuzzy, price it usually cheap enough. Okay, so now tying this back to like the entrepreneur type mm. who they have these visions for things and that's what technically makes them so great. Right. But what you just said is like the price becomes clear when you know what the prize is, but why is there a, a, a thread? And it could be marriage, it could be relationships. You just see over and over, these people tend to trip up over and over and over when it comes to the important things. I think it's like addiction. You know, addiction is giving up everything for one thing. Why did I give up my marriage and my, my family for business and, all, and destroy the whole thing early on? Because the way it made me feel. Success made me feel so valuable. I couldn't shake it. Nothing. Only two things made me feel that way, like success in business and money and sex. That's it. So only two things that is so rewarding. I go, oh, my gosh. You know, this is this is so rewarding. I feel valuable. And how many of us are trying to figure out what's our identity? I mean, identity drives behavior. You want to know what you behave like? Look at what you believe. 
Yeah. Okay. Not what you say. So your feet show that stuff, right? And so for me as entrepreneurs, it takes so much momentum to get out of the, for most of us to get out of the atmosphere, right? To build something of worth. I mean, you and I have similar stories. We both sacrificed everything yeah. to try to be successful at something. And I'm, I'm not saying, the hardest thing I wish, if I could do it again, if I went back, I would just not outgrow my spouse. Because that was the hardest thing. I outgrew Ash in so many ways. She's homeschooled the kids. She stayed at home. All she wanted to do is have adult talk after running that home CEO job that any CEO would say is worth twice what they're getting paid if you did it. I mean, if you hang out with kids all day long and love them and care for them. But we outgrew each other. Her conversations were one way. Mine were another. She didn't learn all about the different financial instruments and things. So we just kept doing like this, right? I should have now. It took us five years to get back like this. I stopped growing. And for five years, I dedicated. I said, I'm only brainstorming with Ash first. And people say, we all work together. Hey, this this thing, you got to be on the same page. If the person who's the closest to you likes you the least, it's a pretty dang big deal. Yeah. And so it's hard for entrepreneurs. Like, how do you tell all enough that they can be in a conversation to where you can work together about what you're both writing checks with your life for? Okay. So if I told you, but an entrepreneur is usually optimistic. So let's say they're, we can call it marriage, but any relationship, they tend to think it's, I can move this one out of the way and it'll get better the second go around. What's been your experience in watching that play out? You know, the hard <laughs> thing is if you move to Idaho, you're there. Your problems moved with you. Like the hardest thing to do is identify my side of it. And whether it's conflict, which is normal, neutral, and natural, all conflict is, is what makes relationships great. We don't know how to handle it. So if you bury nuclear waste, don't think that's going away. You can lay carpet over it and some tile. That thing's <laughs> coming back. And that's the reason when we get in a conflict with our partner or with our spouse, if there's nuclear waste in the basement, that's what you're talking about. You start off on one thing. Hey, I thought it was about this deal point. No, no, no. Then we're back talking about, well, you have never honored me and remember what, you know, and we do that to each other. And I'm always surprised, like even now when nuclear waste comes up, I mean, in my relationships with my partners in business and with Ash, we still have it come up. The question is what you're going to do with it. You're going to go the trouble of burying that thing with a skid steer or backhoe (laughs) again, bury it deep again so you can get it back. If the conflict you're having is not what you're discussing, something's on. How do you get rid of nuclear waste? You know, the first thing you got to do is drag it in the light, I think. Light is purifying. Like talking about something without, are, are you trying to decide who's right or what's right? Mm. Are you trying to co- be connected? Do you want to connect with them or correct them? Once you determine the motive, see, the hardest thing to do in a conflict is sit the ball down. I throw a ball at you, a fastball right at your face. Pow, you catch it. Well, you're like, I'm going to put this thing between his eyes. (laughs) Or you can just set the ball down. It's hard to play ball with somebody that won't throw it back, right? Yeah. And so in in relationships that we really care about, if you want to really, if you want these relationships to last, sit the ball down and listen and take notes. Like for me, when Ash is talking, especially when we're arguing, I try to take notes, not to be right, but to understand. Are we fighting to understand or be understood in business? Once you know that, it gets clear, right? I want to understand what you're going through. I want to see things your way. I want to know what you know so I can better be the role that I've agreed to play. 
your partner, your collaborator, your your spouse, whatever. But a bad in a bad relationship, both sides just want to be understood, and they don't stop. They okay. throw the ball as long until they get tired of throwing the ball back and forth. Bury the nuclear waste with a big track going. We're going to do this again later. And for people listening, they might be thinking, oh, this is happening in real time. But this back and forth can happen over years and decades, sometimes past the grave. Like I meet people now that are still have tremendous ought against their dead partner, dead spouse. I mean, I think about my previous partners like it's interesting. I I went through this transition five years ago. Ash took over our businesses and what what it taught me, it would be one thing if I turned it over to a friend, like one of my partners, like Brad took them over. Yeah. It's another thing to turn it over to your wife, because now people want her and not you. She gets texts, not you. I mean, just like who calls their old doctor or dentist and see what they're up to? <laughs> yeah. That's how you feel. You're just like, I, I don't have the value anymore. Like, y'all need anything? No, we got it. Yeah. Really? Dang it. <laughs> Dang it. I thought I did a lot more than this, but, but that's kind of you know, it, it's how it works. We have to understand that it's it's difficult to manage these things. And relationships are the fabric that businesses and, and, and you know, marriages and all, that's the key. And most of us are relationally retarded. We don't even have one or two good tools. What are the two good tools that somebody could have if, if they were relationally retarded and they wanted to be unrelationally retarded? What would be two tools that they need to pick up? Do you want me to give you the hardest thing in the world? Start there. Sure. Forgiveness and and, uh, love. Forgiveness is easy. I just have to tell you I forgive you, right? Right. The only challenging part, and it's really easy to say, it's just a little harder to live. Because it's not a one-stop shop. You know, we think it's a vaccination. Do you know how much you need to forgive someone of. I don't. It's like we start with the fruit, which is our lips, but we keep working our way back down the trunk of the tree and then we get to the roots and we don't know how far the roots go. But but I know one thing. If I'm arguing with you in the shower and you ain't there and I'm winning, I got it. Unforgiveness. If I'm having conflicts that I'm mentally stewing over, and building my position. And, and of course, I oh. build it in such a way that you lose if I've got them, right? And then I, I start layering it with expectations, which are unvoiced demands. And I start saying, well, if Chris, if he really had changed then, if she really had changed then, now we don't tell them because that'd be too easy. Then they might actually change. We just hold that thing. So they come at the right time. We get them. I can't tell you how many times I've been in solo and worked myself up beyond. <laughs> it's almost like they were right there. Yeah. Sometimes I get more worked up when I'm by myself than when you're with the person. Well, the conversation flows better. Well, because you're right. You answer there. You're so, just uh, like, it's like, ding, yeah. ding, ding, ding. ding. So like, I, it's like, it's like jokes. You're killing it. You won 12 rounds of a <laughs> right. boxing match. Like, man, you didn't I, get hit. Right. And you're just, you feel good at the end, like you had the conflict. But that thing comes a little different when you're sitting in front of the person. Okay. We're all grown adults. It seems to me like children can forgive easier than adults can. How do you forgive and how do you accept forgiveness then in a way that actually gets the job done? It's interesting you said this. How about let's ask this question. Why do you think children can forgive? Okay, let's start there. Because I think they're fully present. I think they're not worried about the future as much. Even if they're future, they maybe think about like tomorrow. We're thinking about 10 years from now or 10 years in the past, if you live in the past, 
or the future, it's very difficult to have this sensitivity to um, what it means for other people to forgive them. And forgiveness is a—see, I think first thing, you can't give what you do not possess. So forgiveness must be first received before it can be given away. I don't think you can—for me, I don't think you can manufacture it. I think you have to feel forgiven. Like for me, I say God forgave me. In spite of being an idiot, when I was at the pinnacle of being an idiot, he forgave me. Because you were good at being an idiot. Dude, (laughs) I was so good. I mean, I told people, I said, most of the people that were around me, when they first tried drugs, it was with me. Yeah. And I didn't want to sell them. I wanted to consume them. I was just concerned (laughs) they were going to stop making them. (laughs) And so I think that, and plus I hurt people because you know what? I was so hurt. I couldn't. I didn't have forgiveness for myself. And if I'm going to treat me rough, I'm surely going to treat you rough. If you want to know how you treat other people, you listen to those voices inside your head talking to Chris and talking to John. That You treat them a little better than that because you want to be kind. Most people. I would whip anybody's butt that talked to me the way I talked to me in okay. the past. So you've said this before, and I'm going to ask you this question because we can agree that I'm very hard on myself. As hard as anybody I've seen. Yeah. And I'm working on that. Yeah. That's that's my forever work to some degree. Well, because you you're worthy of being kind to. So the flip side is you 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 meet people and then everybody listening to this knows that person in their life. Just like the happiest person you've ever met. So happy it sometimes makes me mad how happy mm-hmm. they are. I'm like, you need to be mad at least once. Right. Do you think in their head they're just like like how do you think they are treating themselves daily? Just like life. They're just telling themselves everything that they do is great and life is but a box of chocolates. Like, I am so hard on myself, and sometimes that makes me want to be a better person to other people. But when I see people that you just, I, we all have those people in our life. You yeah. just, you couldn't piss them off no matter how hard you tried. What are they telling themselves every day? Well, I think there's, as you're saying it, I was thinking of Robin Williams. Did he not seem like the funniest guy ever? For sure. See, I think it is the humor and the lightheartedness masking suffering. Or So they're just using it differently. It's just, yeah. It, and, and here's the thing. If you can play games, you can play this game. I mean, I, my wife never knew I did drugs till after we got married. I played a game. You can play a role, right? But you know it's empty. You yeah. know, if you lie to you, you know it. And it's chipping away. And do you, you think most people know when they're lying to themselves, like in the moment, or is it always kind of like in hindsight? I you, think that's a great question. You know what I heard is that, so it, you know how people say, let your conscience be your guide? Mm-hmm. Your conscience can only be a good guide if it's been properly trained, right? right? I mean, a seared conscience, a conscience that has, I mean, imagine if you were raised in Haiti, where, and we were there after the earthquake one time, where, I mean, where, Maybe prostitution or selling your kids is commonplace. You never even knew any different. It it didn't sear your conscience when you did it. Do you see what I'm saying? You have to have, you have to load your conscience, in my opinion, in your heart with positive things. But there are people that are just happy and and it's real. And those people are so contagious. And the thing I would encourage you is two things you can always use as some data points. Look in their eyes, because the eyes are the window to the soul. Pure eyes look different. Look at your kids. The menacing eyes, right? Yep. 
you see stuff. I'm not saying you can always identify what you see, but you know dark eyes too, right? Yeah. So look at that and listen to their lips. The overflow of a heart, the mouth speaks. If if I can get people to, like, when we do stuff at our house, we do these, we get couples together, sometimes high-impact couples, and do these marriage intenses. When we do that, nobody can spend three days with us talking, and it's not like they're standing there in clear plastic clothes. Right. Too, too close. And what is usually the trigger that will get someone to break? It's usually as they begin to deal with their own their own judgment and responsibility. And like high impact couples and, and people that have access to people like you, mm-hmm. that's a blessing. But there's a lot of people that don't have access to that. So maybe my question is just, and maybe it does require a third party, maybe it doesn't, is like, what are things that you can start? Because nobody knows what their blind spots are. That's because they're blind. Nobody wakes up every day and says, like, I'm going to ruin my life today. Right. That's not like a, I don't think anybody actually makes that decision. What are ways that people can maybe look in the mirror and a few questions they could even write down on a piece of paper and have to answer to themselves, even if they never show anybody the answer to maybe reverse what's a bad, what's bad momentum? Something simple is codifying. Like the hardest thing to do is, especially for business guys, and their spouses often is to speak objectively and not subjectively. This is difficult, right? Just to have an objective conversation that's not polarized with high energy of all the hurts, right? Yeah. But if, if a husband and wife get alone and you say, I'll, I'll give you how we start. So we think if you don't have a vision, you have division. Divisions, yeah. two visions. Most marriages have multiple visions in all kinds of areas and they don't know it. So not having a plan is a plan. Yep. It's just a bad one, right? <laughs> it, it, it's just like, let's wing this thing. Yep. Now, nobody wants to do that in their business. Nobody's investing venture capital into something without a plan. Right. Yet we run marriages this well, way every day. We just go through the biggest bubble of all time, so we could make an argument <laughs> no, there, but I get what you're they saying. They got a plan, but the plans were wrong. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I'm they, they looked at a performer that's always surprisingly up and to the right. I've never seen one that even like blips down <laughs> right. for a second. It's just like, imagine if you showed them one like this, I know. I mean, but, but, but we don't have that. So we say, imagine if you just took five areas, faith, family, fun, fitness, and finance, and you just rated yourself one to five on each one where you think you are based on what you believe. And then take your wife and rate what you think hers are based on how all you know about her or your partner. So you rate them one to five, but then you also write down two or three things that you believe about each one. Right. And that way it gives you some lens and then wait for the right timing because the difference in a home run and a foul ball is timing, right? Get good timing and share those with the person and say, I was, and maybe have them do the same thing. And y'all sit down. Like the easiest thing we can do is like, if you had $10, 10,000, 10 million left at the end of the year. What are you going to do with it? Your number one, two, and three thing. Ask your partner, and then they write their one, two, and three. We've never seen them the same unless people have a plan. And this is something as simple as money, okay? There's way more complex kids, relatives. There's all these other areas. And then what happens, I think, if you're like me, I'm polarizing. I feel like I'm a blessing or a butthole or nothing in between. Oh, blessing. But just swing back and forth. I want to stay centered, but I swing. Yeah. So the thing is trying not to swing quite so far, but, but is to get to the point, okay, well, so like, I'll give you an example. I had this conversation with Ash a while back and our family score was lower than, than I've ever seen it. I was like, what's wrong? She said, we're not spending enough time with our elderly parents. 
and they're not going to be here soon. And we'll regret it. I said, well, let's change it. How do we take a, a three to a four? Not a three to a five or not a two to a five. Just how do I move it one number? And I asked her that question. I said, how can I move this score one number? She said, how about we set family celebrations every quarter and we bring our family in and we pay for the food and we love them? I said, perfect. But it has to turn into an actionable item. I mean, in our fitness, go walk 10 minutes a day three times and it'll change your dang life if you're not walking. If I say this, what's something that comes to mind? What are a few things, maybe one, two, mm-hmm. three, you can rattle off as many as you want that most couples would say we're totally aligned on this. The obvious ones that after you've worked with them, they're never aligned on it. Like, so somebody listening that's never done this. I remember when I did it with Michael, mm-hmm. there was a lot of things we were aligned on. And then there were some things I was like totally shocked that we weren't aligned on or totally shocked. I just never thought that that was something to think about. Mm-hmm. And it was one of her top five things. Yeah. So if, what would be something that comes to mind is like most people think they're aligned on this one thing and they're not. I mean, it's the easy because it's easy to count it's money. Yeah. I mean, how much is enough? What are we going to do when we get enough? Do we have a living plan and a giving plan? Like, what are we going to do with this gift we've been given? And and how do we want to live? Like, I remember one couple, I was talking to them, and I said, what? that we got on the subject of net worth, and I asked, the, the husband said, listen, $100 million, I'm fine. I'm done. The wife's like, well, 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 let's don't stop there. We got inflation. And the I'm just like, what are you talking about? But she, it, and we never got to the thing, but she was like, could we go 200 until I can adjust and look at the, it's just that way. We just have different ways of seeing it. And what we drill down on, the hardest thing about that wow I talked to you about is getting to the ultimate lifestyle is figuring out what you would do with what you have. Like for us, we decided we wanted to be, at, part of our generosity is giving away homes. So we had to put a budget in there for how many homes a year and how much are they going to cost? And so I, I encourage you, it's easy as long as you talk generally. When you start talking specific, stuff gets really interesting. And the best thing to do is have a great series of questions. Do most people get divorced or split up because of too much money or because of a lack of money? Or is it just different thinking about money? Yeah, different thinking and and different expectations. And mostly it's love and forgiveness. If I can only have two things to adjust in a marriage, love and forgiveness will solve all the rest of the stuff. Because forgiveness allows you to to find one another again when you mess up, true forgiveness, because then what you did can actually go away and be be diminishing. And I think you're either growing or going in forgiveness. I, there's not an area of my life right now I think forgiveness is done other than the fact that God forgave me for being an idiot, and he did it in an extravagant way. But with Ash and I, you know, we blew our marriage up early. That was 20-something years ago, maybe 26, 27, 28, whatever the number was. She knows. I'm sure I don't know the years. But but not long ago, we were in Italy, and I felt a guy was flirting with her, and I saw her, and the response she made didn't match what I believe she should have. Yep. And it triggered a hurt that took me you know, two months to figure out what in the world was going on. From an incident that happened 30 years ago. That I thought was, we talk about it all the time. You know, I thought it was done. How did you get over it? It's interesting. That's that's really we're and we're, we're constantly trying to figure out how this thing works. If it was a system, right. I'd nail Cause, it. Well, because you've taught. I mean, you've 
you've led people on these exact principles, yet you fell victim to your own principle. All and you the couldn't, time. you couldn't think your way out of it. No, because and Ash couldn't think her way out of it, and we couldn't think our way out so of it together. Happened? So what happened, I was suffering. Did you have um, a good bacon cheeseburger and after yeah, that? just No, but it's funny. So so here's how it worked for us. And I'm not saying we're, we're more messed up than most folks. So there's a lot. <laughs> I, I don't want to think everybody else has to live like this. But so I, this thing happens. And I didn't say anything to her, but I, I judged it. And I didn't know. My heart moved, okay? Then we go back. We're at our son's wedding. We spend two more weeks in Italy eating and restaurant. It kind of gets buried. But it's not buried because I don't want to get close to her much anymore. Something that's like a, a force against it. And she starts going, why are you kind of staying away from me? I'm like, I don't know. So what she did, and, and in the past, she would come downstairs sometime and I would be having a hard time. And she could see it on my face. I mean, I wake up in the morning and something's bad and nothing's happened, right? She'd say, uh, what's wrong? I said, I don't know. She said, can I, can I help you with it? I said, not that I know of. She said, is it me? I'm like, no. She said, well, let me know if you need me. I'm here. I want to help you. That's what she tried this time, and it didn't work. And finally— it, But because in that situation, you knew what was upsetting you. I didn't. But you kind of did. It blipped. Boom. And then it was gone. But she had looked at a, a guy a way this that you— guy, This guy said something to her, and I thought he flirted with her in a sexual way, and I thought she didn't— I didn't see her respond to it, but I didn't think she pushed back from it the way I would want to see it. Yep. And needless to say, it was that's a tense situation when you're out of the country and it's one of yeah. people visiting your son's wedding. Okay. So, so this thing happened, and then I knew something was wrong, but we're drinking wine and having a good time, and it just it kind of got scrambled up in the mix, and then we went about our trip. Get home, and I realized whatever shifted. This thing hadn't lined back up. I am not as we. I mean, the minute you say something rude to your spouse and and some or your partner and it does like this, you know it, right? Yeah, yeah. I knew it happened, yeah. but then I thought it connected back up and it didn't. Anyway, so she gave me my space for two months, and I went and sat in her office. I said, "I just continue to want to push back from you." She said, "Well, I'm trying to give you your space." I said, "Well, it ain't working." <laughs> So she said, what do we do? I said, I want you to hug me and kiss me and tell me how, how good I am and throw yourself on me all the time until we can figure out something else. Maybe that'll work. And it did work. Okay. But I don't know. I mean, it's like it isn't always a, if it was a system, you just write this stuff down. Yeah. But it's a it's a journey. It's playing jazz in a way to learn one another. And I don't know if it was the way she was doing it, or the way I was receiving it. But we worked through it together. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you when it's working again. And for me, there's this. I don't know if you're familiar with the giant world of five voices and these things, but they have a t teaching called the gears. Okay. And it's like you have five gears in your life. Well, first gear is recharge, personal recharge. And I believe that when my personal recharge is not working, I'm more susceptible to those things. And I'd had two relationships that had to go away, long-term relationships, plus this thing with Ash. And, and I, my heart was already broken before this happened. Real quick. Long-term relationships have to go away. What does that mean? Well, I mean, I think relationships are for a season, a reason, and a lifetime. And so imagine one of these relationships I'd have for like five years and the other one I'd had for like 20-something years. And both of them had to change. And so it's hard when you have to change a relationship. Like in one of them, the person had been working 
with us and for us for years, and I love them. When you, it, looking back, because hindsight's more, I think, I think we all know probably who those relationships are in our life that need to either go away or change or something has to happen. The funny thing, I didn't know this one for 20-something years. I was, what you said, blind spot, I called deceived. Because the key to being deceived is you don't know it, right? Right. So my question to you is, on some of these, you don't know, and it just happens, some, an instance happens. That's right. But some of them, maybe you do, and you just kind of kick the can down the road. Well, because the, you know what, it's funny, I've heard the three things that we say you'll change is when it hurts too bad and costs too much, when you know enough you want to, or when the pain of changing is less than the pain of staying the same. That third one's what got me. Mm. The pain of staying the same was greater than. Is changing. there one of those three that's usually the catalyst, or it's evenly distributed? You know, I find mostly that I'm normally changed when the pain's so dang high. Yeah, I, I normally don't get it until, and that's, that's, and most everybody gets it around me, me before me, and then I'm like, they're like, yeah, yeah, and and the only thing that helped me there is I began to seek wise counsel earlier, and I took two older men, 60s and 80s, and said, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think about this? And I'm a little different. I think I'm radical when it comes to counsel. I don't ask counsel without planning on taking it. The, when somebody gives you counsel, the quote is, when people give you advice, what they're really doing is just telling you about themselves. How do you decipher what to take and what to... You get all this counsel. You get five answers. Mm -hmm. Do you just say, look, here's the common thread in all those answers? Like, how do you know which is a great question? Well, you know, I used to look for commonality and unity. And when I asked foolish questions, the answers were always the same. So like I'd ask five smart people what I ought to do about a dumb thing I was trying to do. They would all say it's dumb. (laughs) But when I started asking good questions about good things, the answers started being more varied. Right. Right. From their perspective. And what I learned is I've got to let peace be the umpire. If I'm going to make a decision about people, capital, or strategy, I want to be aligned with the people. I want to be aligned with Ash and I want to be aligned with the people that I know most care for me and know my world. Yep. And so that's how we let peace be it. If it's not at peace, I'm going to keep looking till I find peace. I let peace be the umpire. Marriage is arguably the most important relationship in your life if you are married. But it's not necessarily the one unless you work with that person that you spend the most time with. You There's other marriages, and maybe, again, this is an entrepreneurship podcast. Partnering. Partners. Yeah. Which is just like marriage without sex a lot of times. Is, hopefully, God will. <laughs> no, it could be a good or a bad one, but it could be both, right? <laughs> Does everything we just talked about... Mm-hmm. Could this be looked through the lens also of how you treat your business partner? Or are there elements that come to mind that say there's different things you maybe think about when you're dealing? Because you've also have a consulting business that takes a lot of these principles and you've reworked family offices and family businesses where, I mean, you tell me stories, you'll go into a boardroom, they think they're about to talk numbers and graphs and you figured out in 10 minutes where all the conflicts in the company are and what's holding it back. Well, probably most companies and organizations and families function about 60% of their capacity because of conflict. And they don't know it. They don't know it. I mean, again, here's a great example of this. Just think about when you remember being healthy. Like when's the healthiest you ever remember being? Well, that was a lie. That was just as healthy as you remember being, right? Yeah. 
And so it's interesting for me at 50 something years old, at least from a fitness standpoint, I'm the fittest I've been in my entire adult life. And I didn't know I wasn't until I started realizing it. Right. And see, the reason I stayed away from fitness till 46 is I said, hey, it's vanity. It's about beach bodies. That's all it's about. Well, that's not what it's about at all. <laughs> I mean, some people it is. And for those people, go for it. But it's really wellness. I mean, our this body was built to move. If you want to live quality of life, it, it may not impact quantity, but it will definitely impact quality. And if you think about it, muscles, body armor. And why we lose it, and then we suffer for it. And so it's different. But there is differences between that. Like th- I think there's the preciousness of marriage. There's a whole different set of things that's expected there. I mean, it's the place you should be the most courageous and the most transparent. Yep. And it's the place that should, in my opinion, be a sanctuary from a hard world. Like for me and Ash, we run to one another when we're hurting because it's the safest place on earth. And that's what it should be. Any, any meaningful relationship should be a safe place. And those people should be willing to listen and let you be messy and work it out. But you got to have tools to do this. I mean, say so most people are building one of the com- most complex things on earth. I mean, your marriage is more complicated than an automatic transmission in your vehicle, and you you can't work on that thing. Yeah. <laughs> and and so nobody tries to do their own transmission usually. Like, hey, my my transmission's messed up. I'm gonna do it on this weekend. I'm gonna restore it, fix it, and fix all. It's like you work on transmissions. Yeah. But you ask them about their marriage. It's like, no, nah, I'll read a book, and we went to a weekend thing. We're better. It's like. You better give at least a portion of the time you screwed it up to straighten it up. Yep. And it's the same thing with partners. I mean, it's funny, me and my, I've gotten to points with partners every time that I wanted to divorce them. And I've had to make the decision of what to do with that. And it's not easy because it's got social, spiritual, and economic consequences. What's that mean? You know, there's just consequences across everything. There's financially, what would the bank say if they're on notes and things? You know, it's unscrambling eggs. It's not easy, right? Yeah. But what I've learned is, as I ask myself, I think having a vision for the future that's compelling, if there's hope in your future, there's power in your present. And what happens in relationships, especially business partners, is we lose a future vision of us seeing one another together doing something meaningful. And once that's out, then you're just slow playing the time you're going to get to where you can't take it anymore. Yeah. So a lot of what we have just talked about is relationships, building relationships, why they're important. Mm -hmm. And what we haven't really gotten to, which I think is how I want to bring this home. And so listeners, we're taking a left turn here is where you've spent a lot of your career. And Mm -hmm. so anybody listening to this, go to episode 197 if you want to learn more about the company that John and his wife, Ash, have built. But they're undertaking a project. But there's something you said last night at dinner that I think would kind of spearhead us off here. Y'all are in the hospitality business. Mm -hmm. Ash defines that as thinking of you before you got here. Mm -hmm. But you said, you basically were like, it sucks in America. And you actually were talking about you started it with like restaurants are too big and the whole thing, the whole model in America is screwed up compared to other places. So let's start there. What's screwed up about most American restaurants that other parts of the world have gotten right? Well, and I would say, you know, one thing, somebody sent me, a, my doctor sent me a picture of the beach in, in the 60s and then the same beach now. Hmm. The, 
how lean all the men and women and children were at that time is mind-blowing. I mean, today we think they're all runners or something. They're so lean, but they were all that way. <laughs> yeah. And and our food source is different. I mean, and we know this. I mean, if you don't if you don't doubt it, go live in Italy for a month and come back and tell me you ate the same food over there you eat here. I mean, in wine, for example, what they will allow in America, they would put you in prison for in Europe. So, And why does America let this happen? I mean, it's money, right? I, I mean, and it's ease of shelf life. It's just, it's economically, if you only have to look at the world through an economic lens, you have a different view. And so there's a lot of reasons for that. And, and I'm glad that we, we've eliminated poverty in so many ways. But one thing we hadn't eliminated is people who are full and sick. Right. With things that, I mean, to think if, I thought about like a, like a, if a cheeseburger is 99 cent, I mean, I, I think the wrapper's the most expensive part of that thing because it's got like printing on it and it's good looking in the bag. I mean, I think the, the burger must be like. Well, they've shown like a McDonald's burger sits there on the counter for like a right. year and like nothing happens to it. Right. That's right. So I think first we've got to say, hey, we need to rethink our food source, but it's intentionality. Like if you think across the board, you, intentionality is where we're going. So we kind of model, we think Italy probably Italy, in some ways, to me, is America 1960, okay? Okay. There's smaller roads. There's mom-and-pop shops. You just don't see franchises. And even when they started to put, like, a McDonald's in in Rome, there was a movement started in the 80s called the Slow Food Movement. And it said, listen, Italy's food culture is so important. We need to protect it, preserve it, and work on it. And they do. They have a Slow Food Institute in Bra, Italy. And so we're just saying, what if— and especially the South. Now, we are ground zero for fat people. The, the heaviest people in America are in Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi, right where we're sitting, right? Yeah. And they ain't closing the buffets. They're yeah. building more of them. These I things know. are monsters. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, my dad used to call it a, a hog trough. Well, it's all you can eat, not right. all you can't. Right. And, and people are down to they're like, I'm up for the challenge. I'm eating all I, I like. I used to see people, they'd eat breakfast and lunch at one sitting because they didn't want to have to. And, and of course, I'm not saying being poor is not a, it's hard to imagine eating healthy and not living on a farm and being poor. It's so darn expensive, right? Yeah. But what we're asking, and we're asking questions, and we could fail at what we're trying to do. But after 25 years of studying this and suffering, I believe we're on the most exciting thing I've ever seen, honestly. I, I feel like a mosquito in a nudist colony. I'm so dang excited. <laughs> and I can't wonder why other people haven't seen it yet. I wonder, is this really real? Am I seeing this or am I wrong? That that hospitality for real estate is a force multiplier, as our buddy Eric Weatherholtz called it, a halo effect that is unduplicatable. It has this superpower to make real estate more valuable and attractive, especially places when you have great food and beverage and hospitality. It's like wrestling porcupines. It's not easy. Yeah. I mean, that's why so many restaurants fail. But we also think there's some fundamental things. So let's talk about sizing. One thing we struggle with, we'll launch iconic food and beverage restaurants all over America. We're launching one in a town of 3,500 right now called Moments, Illinois. Okay. So how are you going to open a $2 million restaurant in a dead, dead downtown of 3,500 people? Well, it better be good. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, they already have Subway. 
They yeah. already have Burger King, so you're not going to knock them out. But what we realized is if you're excellent, people will travel for excellence. Okay. And so that's one thing. If we can do things in an iconic way that's excellent, nobody says, hey, I went to this town and had an amazing time. What was it? Ruby Tuesdays. Nobody says that. What's your quote? Dave? I said, Ruby Tuesday's goal is to disappoint us at a rate we'll stand. Right. <laughs> and so, so many food offerings do that today. And so this, this unique idea, what Europe does, I think, well, is they, they right size it. Like, you know, Darden, the group that owns Olive Garden and, and uh, Red Lobster and others, they say, we need more seats, 300 seats or so. Well, it, you can serve a lot of food and you can serve great food. It's hard to serve a lot of great food. Okay. That's the reason your mama's kitchen still works so it's hot off the plate right there onto your thing. So we think <laughs> that we don't see chains and we don't see these big restaurants. In places we travel in Italy, 30, 40 seats is a big restaurant. Some have five. They don't have an olive garden in Italy. No. Okay. And, and so what I think the food source is important. So what we're going to try to do is source a good portion of our menu from 25 miles or less. Okay. So farm to table or whatever you call it. But better than that, that has gotten commercialized like gluten-free and everything else in a way, right? I mean, we're going to know the people. Okay. Personally, Bob, that's, ma that's get, making things happen. So okay. it's intentionality because food's incarnate. I mean, if I told you you're going to build a great house out of crappy wood, you'd probably question my, my theology. Okay, so let me ask you this question. I'm, done, I'm just going to battle right. with you a little bit. I don't know anything about, I mean, I know what good food, but I'm not a food person, but if any restaurant slaps farm to table on there, my American brain immediately goes, ooh, they're better. They're na more natural. They're more healthy. But what you just said is that's been commercialized. How does the consumer know that they're actually eating really good food versus the guy next door that says, well, we're, we're farm to table, too? Well, I think first, I mean, no research is the wrong amount. OK. I mean, you have to care. But most people don't re do most people research where they're going to go to eat and everything. I just go to Yelp and most say, people die sick I, and fat or whatever. I mean, honestly, so is that a trend you're you're picking up on in America that people are going to start paying? They're way reading more? labels. Okay. I mean, I just saw a thing on Blue Bluebell ice cream. It's bioengineered additive stuck at the bottom. Now, I don't even know what that is. I just know I don't want it. <laughs> I mean, I would say if you can't under, like, I'm not, I don't have a super education. You know, so I didn't go to, I got a PhD in, in hard troubles. Yeah. But, but in if that. you, it, yeah. And then in, in debt <laughs> and the fact that debt's a heavy weight to carry, <laughs> you know, and belly flopping your marriage, I wouldn't recommend the path I took, honestly. But what you realize as far as food, if you can't understand the ingredients, I'm asking you why you're eating. Okay. And it's best to not have ingredients we don't understand. We know that. Yep. I mean, it doesn't take long. But secondly, again, the food system's broke. It's hard for me because I'm, I'm, I'm telling you what I want. I'm not telling you how I'm, I'm not judging other people's plan. I'm just saying that I don't want that. If the Cisco truck is and the U.S. foods truck is all the foods coming off of, I'm I'm struggling to believe how much of it is actually from a farm that I would want. Okay. I mean, it's a commodity. Yep. So what I, I think is real food in a real simple way and is sized appropriately has a tremendous opportunity. I think this is a vertical that's, I can't see the, 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 the end to the potential of it. And you said sized appropriately. What yes. do you mean? So like most restaurants, you know, we struggle because a restaurant, the first in the restaurant business as a, as a whole, the first million has very little 
profit in it usually. It's maybe have 10% industry standards. The second one, you can get to like 20%. The third one goes like 30 or 40%. And what it is, is those hard costs are hard to cover in the beginning, right? So in right sizing a relationship, we look at the number of seats to the number of people that it's going to take to create a unique hospitality experience of that to the type of offering we're going to do. Because think about this. If I'm going to build a 300-seat restaurant, I'm going to use probably a 16-foot hood with five fryers, six flights. I got to have all this gear to produce all this at that. Hey, well, now I need a loading dock to get the stuff off the truck so I can produce it at this rate. And But there we better have dumpsters because I got to half stuff's going to get thrown away in there. And then we got to keep the rats out, pick them up. Daily. It's just, it just gets bigger, bigger, bigger. I mean, it's like. These are like, real considerations. Dude, they're everywhere. Nobody thinks about this stuff. Well, like if I go to a construction site, all I want to see is a dumpster. I ain't got to talk to anybody else. I know how the job's being run by watching the dumpsters because they're hauling off what you're paying full retail for. Right? Yeah. And so we just think differently about this. Just simple. But but uh, we're thinking our model are small offerings that are done thoughtfully. So our model for the future, we're creating for this community we're building. And really, it's the culmination of 25 years of work. We started, this is in Opelika, Alabama. Yeah. And so around the country, 12 cities, we're helping them launch restaurants do overnight stay, like hospitality, boutique hotels, and celebratory events, event space. We did them all disconnected, and they had great impact. I mean, towns would be revitalized. Like Jess's town, his little restaurant uh, uh, in a town of 3,000, sees 8,800 people a month. Wow. So it tells you, and we're drawing from about an hour away there. Okay. Because he's serving great, he's serving beef, pork, and poultry raised on his farms, grass-fed, finished in his processing facility that his son owns and served on their plate. It's probably the best protein source in America like that. Yep. So we're going to come at this differently and say, like, we want a 24-hour diner. We think every town needs one, a fabulous one, okay, a 24-hour offering, because we're not just a society where people live at certain, you know, go to work when the sun comes up, go home when it goes down. Now our societies are different. We're going to have fine dining because we think you need that. We're going to have fabulous lunch. And then we're going to have different offerings that can move around it. And, and some of the things I think we're doing that, that are, are going to propel us in the future is, number one, we're going to prep everything in a central prep kitchen that's more like what you would see at a resort like Disney. So whoever's cutting lemons will be really good at doing it, and they'll cut them for, for the dishes, for the drinks, and for everything. So a lot of prep. I think in the in what we do in our world is we've got – Servers trying to wrap napkins when they're not busy. They're trying to help bus tables. They're dealing with the people. And sometimes they'll go back and help watch dishes. They're just, we're taking the people that should be focused on connection and forcing them to be in the production. Okay. I don't think that's what we want to do. We want to do it like a stage where everyone who's there for connection, that's what they're gifted in and they know it. And they can operate in that. And then we're going to try to handle most of the production in a single facility with sophistication in one community. So our community is seven acres. It'll have 55 overnight stay rooms. It'll have eight food and beverage restaurant concepts, and it has three event spaces. And it'll be designed in such a way that that that. So think about this. Our alcohol license spread over eight concepts. All your food licensing over eight concepts. Your marketing shared services can do eight concepts instead of one. Your HR, your accounting administration, all these things are hard to pull off with a single store. And the only way to really pull it off is if you're willing to be the owner of the real estate, 
and also the operator of the real estate. You can't fragment, you can't, it's like, it can't be run. Can it be run like a, what do they call them? Whatever kitchens, where you, food halls. Right. The food where you have different operators that own each one. Do you have to own everything to make it work? Or can I don't think you? you have to. Okay. We're kind of using ours like a laboratory. We've watched a lot of food halls not work because they're competitive in those small environments. Right. I think in an ideal world, one person stewards food and beverage. Yeah. Even if you had eight small concepts. And the thing you can do, like we're building, we're calling them stages, but imagine a small space that has a three-bay sink and grease trap and maybe a, a turbo jet oven like Subway has. Well, that could either be a taco shop, maybe, or it could be a ramen shop. We can adjust these small concepts based on what we're doing. We're building what we consider to be resorts that are diffused over an area. So imagine a small community we go into. You could buy 30 or 40 buildings because it's dead as a hammer. Nobody wants to go there. And you program overnight stay, fabulous food and beverage, and events. Well, now you've taken in a town, I'll give you an example. We're working in town. I don't want to say the town, but because we're still buying, but our, our client there and our, and our, he, he bought 40 buildings for four and a half million dollars. Okay. 250,000 square foot. Well, our current model is if we put $12 million on top of that for the other renovations required, I think we'll have $16 million in it. And we think it can produce four and a half million dollars a year in profit to the bottom line. Golly. So if you look at that, we roll all those incomes, like some of the things we do differently. First, every food and beverage concept, the operations of that is designed before anything else in the performa. Because if we don't have successful operators, everything else falls apart. Right. So we'll do the performa for them and find break even, okay? And break even's as low as we can make it. And then what we do is ratchet up as they go up and, and, and their sales go up, we ratchet up the base rents based on a percentage of gross. Right. And it becomes the new base. Well, now we can borrow on those new base rents. And what we do is align. We want them to survive and then thrive. Right. And so that's how we do it when we do it with other operators. So I think the future of small towns, broken towns, and, and even of some greenfield developments is fabulous food and beverage. It's really restaurants with rooms. Like the driving force is, is fabulous hospitality that drives rooms and celebratory events. What does a town need to possess? So there's tons of 3,500 towns of 3,500 people. Do all of them work or is there some characteristic or a couple characteristics that a town must possess besides size? Let's just assume even with a thousand people, it might work. Yeah, 800 works. Okay. So, then, so, then so what's the common thread? The, the common threads, I think, number one, we got to have for us a, a patron. Okay. That's someone who's willing the greatest fertilizer is the owner's shadow. Somebody's got to care about it. And and so I don't see this working in the same way we care about it without a person that's a patron of a place. They care about a place. They want to live close to their investment. They want to invest into something. Like our Winter Haven, Florida group, I mean, we've down there, there's a community development fund where they've raised, you know, 80 million bucks from 60 locals. All of those guys visit the restaurants. They want to be there. Those families, they want this thing to work, right? Yep. That's a big thing. Number two, you've got to have either two and a half blocks of historic fabric or you're going to have to build that much. Yep. So we need 80 to 100,000 square foot of, of existing buildings or you're going to have to build it. And if you build it, it's a whole different thing. We're doing that actually outside of, out of here, working on a project in Everman right outside of here. And that's all new. 
So it has new things. So those are two things. And then the third thing, it, it is a benefit if it's two hours or less from a major. And from what you've seen, most of these city governments or councils, even at the small towns, they're tickled pink to see this stuff happen. So they'll let you do anything because it's dead. It's so dead. I mean, all the buildings are, you know, are underused or, or, or just vacant. And the amount of what's that, like, I looked at a town here, Laredo, Texas, one time. Somebody asked me about doing something here. I mean, that town was sitting there with fabulous structures that are underutilized that we couldn't build for $1,000 a foot. Yeah, every building we pass in Fort Worth, like, oh, that'd be awesome. Hospitality. <laughs> right. So, and the other thing is this, is that we say there's a minimum viable experience, like an MVE, which is like Thursday to Saturday. So when we start looking for a target, we say, what could a normal couple enjoy? What would they enjoy spending on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday for a trip? You said $2,500 or we set a budget based on what we know. And then we craft an experience that allows them to experience that. Well, if you go to a town and you have an amazing time, great food and beverage, great event, whatever it is, and you leave there, some people start going, you know, I could see myself living here. Yep. But people don't say that without good food and beverage or great place to stay. It's a lot harder. Oh, so where are we going? Ain't nowhere. Two hours away. Okay. So now I'm going to flip it. So you said in, that's the key ingredient mm-hmm. that you got to get right. So then you've probably walked a million developments that just suck. They're lifeless, soulless. They have all the money in the world thrown at them. Because money can't fix this thing. Okay. So what are maybe those developers thinking are the thing? Do Maybe they're still believing in the same concept. They're just getting it wrong. Or do you see... When you see developers focusing on something else, like you know it's going to be a bust. Well, a lot of times I think they're doing it from a standpoint of financial engineering. Yeah, I mean they they know their dang spreadsheets. They know what the, you know what cap rate they're going in and what they plan on coming out. They're more hit and run. A lot of them they want to get it done and get out. And I just think enduring assets are harder to think about. If you think about what an asset's worth for 50 years, that's harder to think about, right? Yep. But I do believe that they also don't want to take the amount of suffering it takes. I mean, how many amazing food and beverage experiences, you know, do you know around America that you'll travel to because they're so good? Right. It's not a big number. No. In your case, are most of your people coming in, coming in from, obviously, maybe the majority of them are regional. Yeah. But are these people coming in from all over the, are you planning nationwide, worldwide? Worldwide. Wow. Yeah. We want to be so good because here's the thing we think the South matters. It's hospitality is, is incredible and it's un, it's unrepresented in the way we want to see it. Yep. Like we've never had an experience that represents a dinner at my grandmother's house or at a, a good friend's house. I mean, I asked Ash, what's the best hospitality you've ever experienced? She said at our house. And it's just intentional. Okay, then I'm going to take that to the comment you also made last night at dinner, which was you basically said restaurants get it wrong because they have production lined up with connection. What right. the people are all scrambled and they're not doing the right things. What does that mean? Well, it's so hard. I mean, think about this. Even the alignment of wages, like we believe the tipping model is is a difficult model. I mean, you imagine if you got paid every day in cash what you make. And, and the next day you showed up and got paid in cash and you just spent it. I mean, it would be an, an interesting environment, right? Like I forget what it's like, how much we make, because you don't get it in cash. But the environment does not create human flourishing in a way. So what we're hoping, I'm not saying we've done it yet, but we're going to 
we're going to take and pay a life-sustaining wage. We're going to pay like factories or great jobs. We're going to do benefits. And then we're also going to hook all the tipping. If you tip, it tips to a pool. We want people, if you tip, it to be spread from the dishwasher, from the from the dishroom to the boardroom, you know, yeah. all the way, whoever has a contribution. That's a different way of thinking about it. And also, in so many ways, we're going to train our own hospitality. Our goal is to build a hospitality institute there as well, which will allow us to train people the way we do this because it makes sense, but it's not common sense. I mean, it's a completely different way to think about this. And so we found our best success is getting people from other industries. Not like we don't normally hire just bartenders because they've learned so much and unteaching them is harder than teaching them. Okay. On that thread of the bar, you were just kind of saying the way a bar maybe should be set up is you have bartenders that are trying to make drinks, but they're also trying to connect and build relationships with people and and the busier they get, they cocktails. screw up both, right? Right. right. You get a, a, a inferior cocktail, and then they're not spending time with you because they got ten of them to make. So, we went to a bar not long ago, which is really interesting in Phoenix. It's the top tiki bar in that region, and um, it seats forty-eight people. Your seating's for like forty-five minutes or an hour, and you prepay for your first cocktail. And then we waited three hours to get in. And so. What if we start seeing in like in our community, the zero proof offering will be as sophisticated and as thoughtful as any alcohol offering, because we're saying beverages are amazing, not alcoholic beverages are amazing. Right. It's just a free way of framing the whole thing. In fact, one of the best bars, the guy who owns, uh, I think, Death & Co., and it's one of the best bars in the world in New York, he's got a new bar where he doesn't, it's 21 and up, of course, but he doesn't tell you if the drink has alcohol or not. He just tells you it's amazing. I'm just saying there's a movement of people who don't want to slam a bunch of drinks <laughs> and want to have fun with their friends and enjoy it and love taste. So we're we're trying, how do we balance our belief that some of the brokenness in this world is from addiction and how do we not cause it? Right. So for us, we're doing ways to think about that even. Like if you're going to get hammered at our place, you're going to have to work hard at it because we're going to make it like a rat's maze to do it. You get 45 minutes seatings or whatever. And what do you do after 45 minutes? You're you like, thanks, thanks for coming. Can no, you get back in line? No, go to the, go to the next concept, go see what's happening over here. But yeah. I mean, the right sizing is difficult. If you look at, if you've been to a Waffle House in the South, Waffle House, they got it. That store, like, it's funny, I was in there the other night. We wanted to go because it just reminds us of the South. We sit in there. And little girl's like, man, it's so dang cold in here. She said, now, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but it made me laugh. She's like, we have to keep the air conditioner at like 62. I said, why? She said, it's in our rule book. I said, why? She said, it makes people get out of here faster. They're freezing. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, that'll work. I'm freezing. I went to my first Waffle House uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, about three months ago. Oh, man, you're a newbie. And I got to be honest with you, I'm not begging to go back <laughs> right now. It's way better at certain things. In the South. Right, well, and just certain things. I mean, there's things they do right and things they got trouble. But it's an incredible business model that's existed a long, long time. And they've been bought out, from what I understand, by private equity. And I think they lost some of who they are. Well, I think private equity, to some degree, not all private equity, mm -hmm. is a good at helping people lose their way. Well, I mean, it, so I think that hospitality is a force multiplier, the halo effect for real estate. If you can do it well, it can make things you have worth a lot more. 
it's actually, I can't come up with, I mean, what else could we build in a small town that'll produce, you know, four or $5 million worth of profit a year, be worth 40 or $50 million yep. in a town of 3000. I just can't hardly think of it other than a factory of some sort. Yep. That's a perfect way to bring this to a conclusion. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Jason, as we sat back years ago and were envisioning where Fort was going to go, we realized we needed to bring in a global workforce, a remote workforce that could work with us. And a few of the reasons why were obviously cost, which I think is the first thing that comes to everybody's mind. But then when we talk about shifts, a 24-hour shift, and maybe you can go a little further there, and some of the other benefits that we've realized as we've gone on, and now we sit here today in 2022, at the time we first had this was maybe 10 employees, now we're at 46. Mm -hmm. And as you think about the next chapter and how we're scaling, it's almost inconceivable that we would do it without Relay Human Cloud. So can you just talk a little bit more to how the shifts work at Fort and the productivity and some of the other benefits that we've learned about working with a, a global workforce? It's actually been pretty transformational from how we think about how we're going to not only get stuff done today, but how we're going to get stuff done in the future as we grow. And so when you start going down that path of thinking about you're going to start working with people on the other side of the world, right? There's a lot of questions that come up. How are we going to do it? How are we going to train them? How are we going to, going to uh, manage them? Who's managing them? All those things come up. What we found with Relay Human Cloud was that all those thoughts had already been taken care of and that we could focus on what type of talent is there that can join our team? Does it fit our need? And once we saw that, that all that thought and energy had already been put into the operational part of managing and running a team and the thing that we focus on here locally, then it was just a matter of finding the talent. And what I think that Relo Human Cloud has done really well is find a lot of great talent. And, you know, uh, these are people that are highly educated, that uh, can provide a ton of value to a company like ours that otherwise we can't find here. And obviously it's at a, a high uh, or a extreme cost savings compared to what we could find here. So what we started looking for was how could we supplement what we currently do with the team overseas? And it started off for us from an accounting perspective. We, we have a lot of these things that are repetitive, task-driven, that just never end. And we know that, knew that our team was taking on a lot of work during the day, which was limiting our ability to take on new properties. And so we could either, we have a choice. We can hire another accountant or another staff accountant or promote somebody and bring that person on. But we're really just trying to solve, at first, a repetitive task. So when we reached out to Relay Human Cloud, we discovered that not only could we solve that problem, we could get a very qualified person that could not only do that, help support on a lot of other things. And so it, very quickly it turned into we're trying to solve some repetitive tasks to uh, bringing on more and more team members that were actually helping us grow our accounting department without having to bring on a lot of people here. And so that, that just continued to grow. So since then, we've brought on additional assistance, but it started with accounting. The benefit of having a team working globally is that you get the benefit of around the clock and it never ends. And so because we have a uh, team here working on things, obviously the time runs out during the day, but there's things that are going to, they're going to come into work tomorrow and they're going to have to start doing that again. One of those things, is, and a good example is cash reconciliations of every bank account. At Fort Capital, we have 50 bank accounts and there's cash reconciliations that have to happen every day. 
Well, that was something that locally a team had to come into work and start working on every day. Well, that just means there's other things they can't start working on. What happened uh, immediately with our team at uh, Relay Human Cloud was that overnight they were processing all those. They were doing all that accounting work on the back end so that when our team showed up in the morning, they could start on more important tasks that were happening happening locally directly related to the property. Mm. And that that allowed us to uh, create efficiencies. And so that's just one benefit. You, we can go through a, a, an entire list of things that we have discovered that overnight can be done to help increase the efficiency of the accounting team. That, that extends beyond the accounting team. It also extends to the property management team processing invoices. So uh, Fort Capital, we have millions of square feet of industrial space uh, across the country. And with that, you have a lot of invoicing that's happening at all times. You, you could name a million things, whether it's paying bills, contractors, tenants, whatever it is, there's a, a million invoices being, and that can all be processed in India overnight so that when our team comes in, they're not spending their day processing invoices, which yep. allows us to get to more uh, proactive accounting measures so that we're using our accounting team to actually push the company forward, not uh, keep up with what's coming at us. Got right. It. And so we found a ton of efficiencies um, by using or by having the 24-hour workday. So following that up, it was also important to us because that could have been done anywhere, but we wanted it happening under one roof with people that we knew, that we worked with daily, that were part of our team. And so as you think about these people that are halfway across the globe, it still doesn't seem like they're, ha- it seems like they're in the next room over. Right. And, and that, that's a good point. And I think the, what, what's important to understand there is that this group of individuals that are working in India are working directly for our team. They are a part of our team. They're in our systems. Um, they communicate with our team every day. They are not just an extension of our team. They are a part of our team. And so it is much, much different than if you go hire a third party service out there in the world that you're asking to process invoices, who you're having to send uh, critical or uh, important data to that is or might be sensitive, right? Um, information. We actually have all that internal and this team is a part of that internal team. And so it, it's a it's a much different way to look at outsourcing than if you're just outsourcing it even here locally in America. There's a risk there that you're uh, sending your data to somewhere else. This is all happening internally. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 